Good evening, church. We get to keep walking through the Gospel of Luke this evening. Jesus is still on the road to Emmaus. And all of chapter 12 that we've walked through so far has pretty much been a longer sermon in the middle of his teaching. And tonight is the climactic end of that sermon. Throughout this sermon, he has given pretty weighty teaching in the sermon. And that's good because Jesus understands that God is weighty, that sin is weighty, that eternity is weighty. And so he speaks in a weighty way because we need to hear that, don't we, church? So the topic he's going to talk about, Jesus is going to talk about this evening, is the heaviest topic yet. And also the sweetest, it's repentance. Repentance. Repentance is something that all of us strive to do who are in Christ. All of us need to do. And it's also the hardest thing to do. Is there anyone here who wants more help repenting? That's, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do this evening. He's going to give us help repenting question I want us to answer this evening is what can we do when it's hard to repent? What can we do when it's hard to repent? And maybe you're here and you're just visiting and you don't even know what that word means. That's okay. We're going to talk about that more as we walk through this passage. And my hope is that you'll want to join us in repenting by the end of, the, the end of this evening. So let's, let's hop right in and take a look where Jesus starts and what he has to say to us in Luke chapter 13. So he says, There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So to set the scene, Jesus is preaching about himself coming back. He's preaching about final judgment. And then some people bring up kind of a discussion out of the blue. It must have been on their minds. Some great injustice had just happened in their region, in their area, and they want to get Jesus' thoughts on it. Maybe it's similar to the situation in Afghanistan right now, where a lot of our hearts and minds are thinking about the tragedy that's happening over there, and we want to know, like, what is, where's God in this situation? Why is this happening? This is really troubling and really hard. Well, this would have been something that's really troubling and really hard for the Jewish people back when Jesus was around. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what, what do you think about this? So what happened? So there were some Galileans. So those are Jewish people who are up from the northern region of Israel where Jesus grew up and Jesus ministered. And they made a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. That means that they took a journey down to Jerusalem. And what they did was they brought animals into the city to sacrifice them. This would have been an exceptional moment in their lives. This would have been a big trip to them, for them. Back then, before Jesus came, when you're closer to the temple, you're closer to God. And so this would have been a huge moment for them, taking this journey down to this temple to offer these sacrifices to God this would have been a pious and a noble thing to do. You should have think, man, these were probably pretty good people. These were probably pretty 
nice people. And what happens to them? Unbelievable tragedy. Pontius Pilate, he's the ruler who's in charge when Jesus gets crucified. He's in charge at this point. And he's unbelievably brutal. He has a reputation in history for being unbelievably brutal. And for some reason, undisclosed in the text, he decides to slaughter these people, kill them, and their blood ends up desecrating their sacrifices. It gets mixed with it. This is just something that would shock and horrify anyone. This is like really upright people doing a really upright thing and something really awful happening to them. And they're like, Jesus, what is going on? You guys ever feel like that? When you see awful, horrible, unthinkable things in the world? Jesus, what is going on? How, how are you allowing this to happen? This is one of those situations. So if you think that's unique to our time, unique to our place in history, it's not. There's been atrocities happening through all of time, and Jesus has a sure and steady answer for us. If, if you remember the book of Daniel we preached through just a couple weeks ago, a few months ago, this is exactly the kind of brutality that he prophesied about would face God's people and still face God's people right now. Right now, there are believers in Afghanistan being killed in brutal, awful ways. And these people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what, what is going on? Now, Jesus' answer to them is absolutely shocking. <laughs> like, when you read it, it, it's not what you would expect him to say. What, what does he say in verse 2? And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What a powerful question. Do you think that they were worse sinners because they suffered in this way. What Jesus is doing is he's confronting the wrong assumptions of the people in his culture about suffering and evil. And all of us in this room, I guarantee, have wrong assumptions about suffering and evil and how God is running the world. What's the assumption Jesus is confronting? He's confronting the assumption that they had that if someone suffers spectacularly, it's because they sin spectacularly. That's uh, a view that would have been very common in ancient Israel. If you remember Job and his friends, his friends come to him and they see him suffering. And they're like, dude, what sin did you commit? You're suffering, so you must have sinned. And Job's like, no, I didn't. And that's precisely what Jesus says here, that that is a wrong inference to think that suffering and sin are always connected to each other, that a particular sin you do always leads to a particular suffering in this life. Jesus immediately says, no, that's not the case. He says in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what's he saying? Well, first of all, I want to say right now that I think all of us are thinking through sin and suffering and how God runs the world a little bit in a skewed way. At least I know I am. I don't think anymore that a lot of us, when we see someone else suffer, we don't think, oh, that person sinned, they deserved it. I don't think that we think that way anymore, which is good. But a lot of times, at least I know this is the case with me, when I suffer, I feel like, man, I must have done something wrong. God's far from me. 
God's not close to me? Man, what, what's the problem, Ross? You, you're, you're probably screwing up right now, aren't you? Or when things are going really well in our life and everything's going fine and the job's going well and friendships are going well and family's going well, and we think, oh, man, God must be so close to me. I, man, he's really blessing me. And either way, whether it's in your own life or others' life, if you're trying to read God's heart based off of circumstances, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. God is wiser than us, and he's running the world, and he's doing a thousand things that we cannot see right now through your suffering. Right now through your suffering. He's doing a thousand things that you cannot see, and he's doing it through your suffering. And we cannot peel back the mystery of God's wisdom in this life. You can't figure them out. It's going to take until the next life to learn these things. Right now, the one place we turn, the one place we turn to learn the heart of God is the word of God and the cross of Christ. If you want to know what God's heart is for you, don't look at how well your life is going. Look at what Jesus did for you. That's exactly how God feels about you. So let us not try to make the mistake that these Galileans made and try to draw inferences between how life is going and how God feels about us or anyone else because that's just not the way God works. He's far more mysterious than that. He's far, beyond, far much more beyond figuring out than that. Some of you are pretty smart, but you are not smart enough to figure out our God. Sorry about that. So what does he say? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So this is, this is heavy. What Jesus says is when you see someone else suffer and die or something horrible happen in their life, that is not a commentary on specific sin that they committed. That is a commentary on the sin that we've all committed. And what that is, is a preview of the judgment that we all deserve. So catastrophes that happen in this life are reminders that God's judgment is coming and reminders that it is what our sin deserves. Now, what's so sweet in this passage is that Jesus is going to show us the way to life. His heart is not that any would die. But if he cares about people, and he does care about people, he has to warn them, does he not, about what is coming and what is happening? And what he's saying is that when we see catastrophes in the world, when we see catastrophes in our lives, they are pictures for us to teach us about sin and its consequences. I have, I have problems feeling the consequences of my sin. It's, it's, it's not something that keeps me up at night. I wish it was. It's not something that always feels like a burden on me. I, I need to pray and I need to grow in this way to feel the weight of my sin. But something that ought to make me feel the weight of my sin is when I see the weight of suffering in the world. If any of us were to ask the question, why is the world as messed up as it is? Why is the world as broken as it is? An adequate answer, a right answer would be because of me. We're all, we're all contributing to the sin problem. The Bible does not teach that there is one group of good people and one group of bad people. That's what we're, we're prone to believe. We try to separate people into good people and bad people and come up with some standard by which we can sort them into these two groups. 
but rather since the beginning of the Bible, since the book of Genesis, since the fall of Adam, there is one group. Sinners in need of a savior. That's the one group we're all in. Do you come here thinking that you're a righteous, moral person and you're going to get into heaven maybe because you're a little better than the next guy? No. You're a sinner like me in need of a savior. And that's exactly who we're going to encounter this evening, that savior who's here to pluck us out of this sin and disaster into which we all stumble without him. Then then Jesus goes on and he provides another example. Okay, so he's really wanting to make his point because he repeats himself. Take a look at verse 3. Or sorry, verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So first Jesus brought up or sorry, first the people who came to Jesus brought up an example where someone committed an atrocious act and they were like, does that mean they're worse sinners? And Jesus says, no. And I'll give you one better. Even this accident, this, this tower that fell, sometimes people might use language like that was an act of God, a complete accident that killed random people. Is that because they're sinners? Is that because... They deserved it. And Jesus reiterates himself, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The judgments of God are warning alarms to wake us up to the reality of final judgment so that we can flee to Jesus and live. God wants us to flee to Jesus and live. And these events, as awful and tragic as they are, are in one way a mercy because oftentimes without them, we would not wake up and come to Jesus. My heart is hard. I'm sorry, friend, but your heart is hard too, apart from his work. And may we become more aware of this. Oftentimes, we are so amazed at awful things and think, how could this be? How could this be? But instead, I think we should be amazed that God is having mercy on most of us right now and withholding his judgment. I mean, just think about this, church. Just think about this. The majority of humanity right now is rejecting God, rebelling against him, despising him, disliking him, trying to dethrone them in their hearts. And what was his response this morning? What was God's response to all the rebellion in the world to him this morning? He caused the sun to come up. He gave people breakfast. A lot of people had clothes to wear today. Families and children and jobs. God kindly gave undeserved gifts to people who were in rebellion against him. And gave undeserved gifts to every one of us who were in rebellion against him. And rather than judging us instantly like we all deserved, he patiently waited until we repented. He patiently waited until he repented. And so when I see a judgment of God in this world, I think, there go I but for the grace of God. And thank you, God, for your patience. 
that even though tragic things are happening that we ought, right, ought to weep about, mercy is happening day in and day out. It's an amazing miracle that our God is as patient as he is. And I would encourage us to have a perspective on this every day when the sun comes up. To be amazed that your God has given another opportunity for sinners to repent. Isn't that astounding? A God as holy as the God in the scriptures who tolerates no sin somehow is merciful every morning and gives more people an opportunity to come to him. And waited so long as to give you an opportunity to come to him and is even right now, right now as I speak, extending his hand to every sinner who would come to him. The coronavirus is one judgment that has come on the world like an alarm bell. Wake up. Wake up. Repent. Repent. Tom Schreiner, he's one of my favorite Bible teachers. He's, he's at a seminary down south, and this is what he said when he was asked about coronavirus. He said, all temporal judgments are meant to direct our attention to final judgment. So that's how we think about these things. That these are meant to raise our awareness and raise our alarm so that we'll flee to Jesus. And church, if you're a loving person and you see something like this happen, is it not a call for you to go and tell as many people about Jesus as possible to rescue them from the faith that you've been rescued from? Every time you see a catastrophe like this happen, is that not a call to preach Christ everywhere to end everyone? I think the, the little things that happen in our lives and our annoyances can also serve to make us holy. For me, for example, I just have this awful canker sore in my mouth. It's been there for like a week and a half. If you want me to show it to you after the service, just come. <laughs> and on one hand, it has irritated me so much. And on the other hand, it's made me thankful that I don't have to suffer forever, that this is just a temporary thing because of what Jesus has done for me. And if you want to pivot, pivot from kind of wallowing in your annoyances in life and your pain in life, look at them as reminders of what's real and what's ultimate so you can keep your mind in the right place. So I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what is one way to repent? What is one way Jesus helps us to repent? Jesus turns our attention towards final judgment to help us repent. So very simply, think more about final judgment if you want to repent more. Remember that there is a judgment day coming so that you can repent more. If you need help hating your sin and loving Christ, remember that day is coming. I want to talk more about this word repentance. Because if we don't know what the word repentance means, this passage is not going to make a whole lot of sense. Repentance is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, and it's the sweetest thing you'll ever do in your life. And it's the one thing that I want to do in my life more than anything else. You'll never regret repenting for all of eternity. Ever re regret it. 
And on the other hand, if you don't repent, you will regret it for all of eternity. If there's one thing I want to do with my life, and one thing I hope you do with your life, it's repent. So what is it? What is it? Repentance is an inward renewal and transformation of your heart that results in an outward transformation of your life. Repentance is an inward transformation of your heart that results in an outward transformation of your life. It's when our allegiance shifts. I know you don't have kings and queens anymore, but all of you have ultimate allegiances to what you love most, what you cherish most, what you care about most. I have ultimate allegiances. And in my flesh, on my own, my allegiance is to self. Self and sin are my old allegiances. They're your old allegiances too. And repentance is when those allegiances change from sin and self to God. It's the turning away from sin and self and the turning to God. It's coming to him in complete surrender. It's coming to him in complete vulnerability. It's coming to him in complete trust. It's outward change that is the result of inward change. This is one thing that separates Christianity from worldly religion and psychology. And I studied psychology, so I didn't mean it to take a shot at psychology. I like psychology. But just some secular psychology. There's great Christian psychology. Is that we are not primarily about behavior modification. We are about heart transformation. And heart transformation happens when you repent. When you turn from old loves and old idols and to a new Lord and a new King who's even better. We oftentimes, I'm going to get to this later, think about repentance as an unpleasant thing, as a, just a putting to death and putting away and stop having fun. But it's actually a change from things that don't satisfy to things that do satisfy. It's a change from what is empty to what is full. And this is what saves. Repentance is what saves. You might ask me and think, well, what about faith, Ross? I thought faith is what puts us into a right relationship with God. I thought faith is what Christians are supposed to have. And my answer would be, is that you need faith to repent. Repentance and faith are inseparably connected, and you need faith to repent. Why do you need faith to repent? Repentance, like I was saying, is making yourself completely vulnerable before God completely vulnerable. Like, if, if someone was standing here and this was my posture before them, do I have any... I'm completely vulnerable. Have you ever made yourself completely vulnerable before or surrendered to someone you don't trust? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We only surrender. We're only vulnerable with people that we trust. That's why we need faith in order to repent. And that's why faith always leads to repentance. Because when you trust God, you see that he's worth surrendering to, and you can trust him and surrender to him. Friends, repentance itself is a miracle that flows from the gospel. Repentance itself flows from the cross. Without Jesus hanging on the cross, 
paying for our sins, providing a way to God to be right with him, to have all our sins forgiven, there would be no repentance. There would only be judgment. So because Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could be freely forgiven, every single person can repent. Every single person is welcome to come to him. Is that not amazing to you? Repentance is a miracle because God paid the highest price imaginable to buy it for us. Every time we repent, we are walking into something that the blood of Jesus Christ got for us. Isn't it wonderful what our Father has done in giving us the opportunity and the gift to repent? Repentance is also the only way to live. The only way to live. We're bombarded with and our thoughts produce human solutions to our sin all the time. I got to try harder. I got to be nice to so, so many people. That is not repentance. Repentance starts with the heart. It's an inward shift to God and surrender to God that results in outward life transformation. And that is the only way God pardons sin and reconciles sinners to himself. There is no other way, church. There's no other way to be right with him. There's a movie series that used to be good before they ruined it. It's not kid appropriate, so, or family appropriate, but it's just iconic, so it came to mind. Um, in the second Terminator movie... Arnold shows up, and he's here to save Sarah. And, and she, thinks, she thinks that he's there to kill her, but he's actually there to save her life. And if you remember, she's in grave danger at that moment. And that is the only way for her to live. There's a famous line from that moment. Does anyone, maybe some older senior members, sorry, does anyone, does anyone remember that line? The thing. Thank you. That's right. Thank you, Pete. He says, come with me if you want to live. Come with me if you want to live. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying to every one of us this evening. Come with me if you want to live. There's no other way out of your sin. There's no other way out of your devastation. There's no other way out of your guilt. You need to come with me if you want to live. So please do not leave this room thinking you can fix your sin problem without Jesus. That is the biggest failure. If, if I cannot convince you of that tonight, or sorry, if God does not convince you of that tonight, I can't convince you of anything. Do not leave this room thinking that you can fix your sin without Jesus. Because repentance is the act of turning to Jesus for surrender and rescue. He is the only one who can help us. So I have two questions I want to ask right now. Question one. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, will you please repent this evening? Will you please turn to him? And question two. If you're a follower of Jesus tonight, would you please repent? Would you turn to Jesus?
Repentance is not a one-time thing you do when you meet God. It's an everyday thing as you walk with God. The lifestyle of the Christian is one of repentance. We kill our old self when we become Christians. We turn from our old self and put it in the grave. And every morning I sense this in myself and I see this in others, that old self has the tendency to get back right out of the grave, doesn't he? So what do you need to do every day? You got to repent. You got to repent. Martin Luther said, when the Lord Jesus called us to repentance, he called us to repent every single day. If our church is marked by anything, any virtue, any part of the Christian life more than any other, I plead with you that it be this, that we repent. And we're always, always turning from our sin and turning to our Savior. Turning from what kills us to what gives us life. Repentance is what takes the Christian life and turns it from a sterile religion into a living relationship. It takes it from sterile religion into a living relationship. How many of you have had a close relationship with someone you're not vulnerable with? How do your marriages work out when you're not vulnerable with each other? How do you think it's going to go with God if you put up walls and refuse to repent? How is it going to go? Not well, church. Repentance is not first and foremost about you not doing what you want to do. It's first and foremost about your relationship with God going deeper than ever. That's what repentance is for. Your relationship with your God. So I'm calling you. I am calling you to do the hardest thing you've ever done. And I promise you it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. All right, let's keep moving through our text. Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he goes into a parable. And the parable is going to teach us about repentance. So what we're going to do is learn more about repentance as we walk through this parable. Verse 6 says, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So Jesus uses the image of fruit to represent repentance. He uses the image of fruit to represent repentance. And we know this because the Gospel of Luke has already used this same imagery about repentance. Think all the way back to Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist. What does he say in his sermon? He says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So fruit represents repentance. And this illustrates more what I'm trying to get at, that repentance is first a heart change before it's an outward transformation. Maybe some of you have been trying very hard to change your behavior and it's not working because you're not yet addressing your heart and your love for Christ above the love for sin that you're fighting against. And what this imagery teaches us is that our repentance needs to start at the heart, start at inward transformation, and it results in fruit, outward transformation, outward lifestyle changes. If you'll notice in this story, or in, sorry, in this parable, a man found the tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit and found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit, and I find none. Cut it down. Cut it down. Friends, repentance starts in the heart, but if it does not show up in your life, you have not repented. Repentance starts in the heart, but if it does not show up in your life, you have not repented, and I'm worried for your soul. Do you hear the language that if you will not repent, you will not be saved? If your life does not change, you will not be saved. It's not our lifestyle changes that put us into a relationship with God, but it's the evidence of a true relationship with God. So I just want to plead with anyone, if you have any secret sin right now, if you have any sin that you're refusing to let go of, any addiction, any pornography, any drug, anything that is you're holding on to, anger, greed, whatever it is, listen to the words of this parable. It says, cut it down. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. We need to change within so that we can change without and we can live forever. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And he uses the imagery of fruit. Fruit represents life. Fruit represents abundance. If you look back to the Garden of Eden, that's where we first see fruit in the Bible. Fruit represents a right relationship with God, a right relationship with people, protection and provision. Fruit itself, it just tastes good. It's, just, it's God giving life to us, is it not? And so what this imagery is showing us is that repentance is connected to life. Repentance brings life. When you repent, you get your relationship with God grows, and you get more of God, you become like God, and you get more of him. Repentance gives you what you're yearning for more than anything else. It's not just the removal of death and decay and wickedness in your life. It's the replacement of it with life. Death does away with the old and it brings in with the new. Repentance is not about changing your behavior. It's about transforming into an entirely new person within and without. God is remaking all of us as I speak who are trusting him into new creations. And he's doing it through repentance. He's doing it through the old things dying and the new things coming into life. Your daily, God is bringing new life into your life as you repent. And you're becoming more like him and you're becoming more intimate with him. Repentance is a process where life replaces death. A few of us just finished reading through the book the Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. I highly recommend it. She has this chapter on repentance, and I'm just going to read a paragraph from that chapter that I love so much, and it illustrates what I'm trying to tell us right now about how repentance is not only the death of the old, but it is the creation of the new. Here it goes. Paul knows how deep real repentance goes, how it undoes a sinner and remakes him, and how it leaves him raw, vulnerable, and transparent. I imagine Paul, years after the Lord had made him apostle, years after his days of slaughtering Christians for religious zeal, breaking bread with a fellow believer and recognizing something in the shape of an eye, the turning up of a nose, the tone of a laugh or cry, I also imagine the horror that could have seized him, stopped him, made him gasp for breath. I can feel the recognition, that eye, that nose, that voice, listen to this, so similar to someone he had murdered. 
Paul may have found himself at table fellowship with the children of a faithful mother he had killed in his pharisaical zeal. Repentance changes everything. Through it, you become something you could never imagine. God is in the process of making us into people we would never imagine we would ever be through repentance. Think about your old self. Would you ever imagine you'd be where you are right now? And I hope that 20 years from now, through repentance, the person you will be would be unimaginable to who you are today. God is not done with any of us. He's not done with any of us, making us like Jesus. And he's making us into new creations through repentance. I'm looking forward, church. I'm looking forward to 20 years from now, seeing how God has changed us. And seeing how much further along we're being, we are to being like Jesus, like we never imagined. You may look at me now and be like, man, that guy's pretty immature. And then see me in 20 years and be amazed at not what I've done, but what God has done. And I hope the same thing would happen for each one of us here. That we'd be amazed one day at what God is doing. And amazed right now. Amazed right now at what he's done. I've heard some of your stories. I've heard some of your stories. And it is unbelievable to see the people of God you've become. Repentance is not just stopping sin, but becoming a new person. It's a death and resurrection. Your old desires, your old agenda dies. Your idol dies. The thing that was most important to you besides God dies. That's a big deal. It dies. And a new value, a new desire comes into being. It's a death and a resurrection. Repentance is a death and resurrection, which means that the only way to live is to die. That's my main point I want to get across this evening. The only way to live is to die. If you're trying not to die to your sin right now, if you're trying not to die to your independence right now, if you're trying not to, not to die to evil right now, my hope is that you would die to those things. It is the hardest thing in life to die to our idols because we look to them for security, we look to them for comfort, we look to them for life. And my hope is that we would all be willing to die to those things so that we can live. The only way to live is to die. I'm trying to talk us all into dying afresh this evening. Are you holding on to your old life? Are you holding on to your old idols? Friend, the only way to live is to die. That's what Jesus means when he says repent. Die to the old so that God would create the new. If there's more of God on the other side of repenting, it's worth it. Why wouldn't you repent if you could have more of God? Yeah, but I love this so much. It, it makes me so happy. Not happier than God. Not happier than God. And one word, as I was mentioning in this parable, repentance is more than feeling sorry. Repentance is more than feeling bad about what you did. What this, what this imagery of fruit teaches us is that it's a whole new transformation of the person in which you become a new person which means that if you're just feeling sorry for what you're doing, but you're not actually transforming, you're not actually repenting. 
So if you're in that place where you're feeling bad about what you're doing, but you are not able to change, please talk to me. Please talk to someone else in this room before you leave tonight. Because we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the Lord. True repentance always results in true transformation. So one question, one more question I have this evening for us. Where do you need to repent? Very simple. What is the Lord laying on your heart that you need to repent of? Where do you need to die so that you can live? For me, it's time-wasting right now. Am I saying, oh, that's not a big deal, Ross? We all slip up with our time. But it's a command of the Bible to make the best use of the days because the days are evil. And I squander way too much of my time on the internet, playing games, doing all sorts of things that amuse my flesh that don't leave me with the time and margin I need to love God and love other people. And I mention this one not because it's the most severe sin of all, but because I think a lot of us are probably in this boat right now. I've never seen more diversions available. I've never seen more time-wasting available. And just about everyone I talk to about the Christian life eventually confesses this sin to me in some sort of way. Man, I just wasted an hour today doing this or that. And my call is not for us to just feel super bad about that, but to want so much more of Jesus that we put to death whatever is keeping us from having more of him and loving other people like he loved us. So where today is the Lord asking you to repent? It could be there. It could be somewhere else. But please, please don't leave this room this evening without growing in the next level of being with him and being like him. Please don't do this. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What we see happen in the story is the vine dresser is ready to cut down the fruitless tree. And the owner says, wait. Wait. I want to give this tree more time to bear fruit. Jesus is illustrating again his patience towards us. We were about to die, and God said, wait, wait. I want to give you more time to repent. And then he says, I, until I dig around it and put on manure. So he's going to start fertilizing this tree. What struck me about this detail in the story is how eager God's heart is for us to repent. Like he, he's, he's trying to do whatever he can to get this tree to repent. A lot of us have this image of God that he is frustrated with us, that our sin has provoked him, that he doesn't want us to come close to him, and he does want us to come close to him, church. He wants you to repent. He does not have a hard and judgmental heart. He has a soft and gentle heart, and he is wanting poor sinners to come home to him. And he wants you to come home to him. Listen to this. He says, wait a year until I dig around it and put on manure. So in other words, this is amazing. He's willing to overlook the three years of fruitlessness if fruit comes at the last moment. 
Are you feeling like you're not worthy of God because you spent most of your years in futile and sin? He's saying, if you come to me even now, even now, I will so gladly receive you. I will so gladly receive you. Maybe you wasted 30 years. Maybe you wasted 40 years. I will gladly receive you. That's his heart towards sinners. What's crazy is that sin does not harden his heart towards sinners. It provokes his heart for sinners in his mercy and compassion. He loves us, and he sees the depths to which our sin drags us, and it doesn't create disdain in his heart. It creates compassion and tender mercy in his heart. That's the kind of God we're talking about this evening. The, heart, the worse the fall, the deeper the sin, the more depraved the person. We tend to think that person ought to go to hell, and God thinks, I want to save him. I want to save him. I, I've seen how much his sin is taken from him, and I want to save him or her. So don't listen to your lying flesh telling you that your sin will keep you from God because it won't unless you let it. It will not unless you let it. Anyone who comes to him, anyone who comes to him, he will gladly receive. But verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. We have to end on a word of warning because the text ends on a word of warning. Do not buy the lie that you can sin today and repent tomorrow. Don't buy into that lie. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. You could die or Jesus could come back. And worse, you do not know if your heart will repent tomorrow, if it's soft enough to repent today. Every time you sin, every time you turn further from God, your heart grows a little harder, and there's no guarantee you'll ever turn back to him. So if you feel him pulling on your heart right now, if you feel him working on your heart, drawing you to himself, do not despise his grace, please. Please don't despise his grace. I want every one of us to stand secure in Christ at the judgment. And the safest, best thing any of us can do is to lay it all down right now and turn to him in utter repentance and faith. So I want us to close tonight laying it all down before Jesus afresh. Maybe, you've, maybe you're, you're pretty religious and jumped through a lot of the hoops. I want you to lay it down afresh tonight. There's no one too mature and no one too immature to lay it all down at Christ's feet tonight. Total surrender. Total surrender, church. When Jesus asks for us repentance, he's not asking us to give us most of our lives. He's asking us to give him all of our lives. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Where is the stronghold in your heart that you're refusing to give to him? It's time to knock it down tonight. So please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your stern and direct words because they're loving and they're meant to break up the soil of our hearts and bring new life. And I ask that you bring new life into me and new life into this church right now to the next level beyond what you've brought. And if there's anyone who needs to repent for the first time tonight, may they do it. And if there's anyone who needs to repent for the millionth time tonight, may they do it. In Christ's name, amen.